Human Vortex Training and Menachem Brody present the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, physiology, psychology, tech, and much more to help you get fitter, faster, and stronger in and out of your sport, giving you expert insights, talking with other leading experts. And now, your host, world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Welcome back, everybody. This is Menachem Brody, and you are listening to the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. This is episode five, and we are following up our second guest, we had two guests, one on episode three, Dr. Casey Hill from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and episode four was Lee Taft, the speed guy uh, out of Indiana. And uh, Lee's been in speed training for about 25, 30 years at this point, and Dr. Casey Hill has been coaching runners on strength training uh, for quite some time as well, and you can hear that in both of their interviews. What we're going to do today is we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of how this show is organized, and that is going to be me tying together our last few guests and giving you the big take-homes that that I would like for you to hear and I think are important as an experienced coach for you to, to take home to your athletes or to your own training. And that's kind of why I started this show. There are lots of different podcasts out there. But nobody's really asking the tough questions, uh, the higher level questions are really digging in. They're kind of stopping at the surface and no one's really going back and allowing us to uh, dial back into what it is that is the real take home from that episode. And of course, there's always going to be many, many different take homes for different people. We all hear what we'd like to hear. But what we're going to do here on the Strong Savvy Psychocentral Athlete Podcast is boil it down. I'm going to share with you the big take-homes as well as what I'm doing in my practice and why I asked each of these guests to join us on the show. Now, sometimes there's going to be a lot of thought behind the guest, and other times it's going to be they were recommended by another guest, or maybe we had a really great conversation, or they wrote an article, or maybe one of you recommended that... I interview this individual uh, via the interwebs. And this is the great part about the show and where it really starts to take form. So we have lots and lots of great things to get into. So let's start off with episode number three with Dr. Casey Hill. Now, one of the things that I'd like to uh, really try and, and stress is as you go along your fitness journey, we always want to be asking more questions. There comes this point in time where, you know, you kind of read a little bit, you feel comfortable with the knowledge base that you have. So you start talking and sharing things with people. Uh, and then you stop because you start reading more and you're like, hmm, well, this is really interesting. And you're just consuming and trying to figure stuff out on your own. And really, the most important thing is, is that as you go along, that you always want to stay curious. And that was one of our main themes with Dr. Casey Hill. And let's just take a listen into early on uh, to that interview as to what he said about uh, always continuing to learn and not thinking that you have it all figured out. You know, it's definitely happened to me that you learn a little bit and you're like, oh, yeah, this, that and the other. And then once you learn more, you realize how many stupid things you just said and, and how often we we don't know the answer. And that's I think that's such a big part of medicine and, and even sports science right now. And you can think of a lot of examples. Uh, I know you saw my post the other day just about shoes and and stuff that we've taken for granted that everyone bought, everyone learned it. I was taught this when I was in, in my third year of residency that we have these 
three foot types and we got these three shoe types. And if we mix and match, bad things are going to happen. And just over the last 10 years, pretty much every study to the contrary showed that the opposite of that, or at least that we, we don't really know. And this is something that's really important that we need to be careful not to think that we know it all. And this is something a lot of my mentors and, and athletes that I've had and, and other professionals that, that I've met for years have been telling me, Brody, you need to start a pod- podcast. Ryan Cummings back in Pittsburgh, PA, all the way back in 2007 or eight, when I first met him, was telling me, you need to have a podcast. You need to share what you know. And I was exactly at the point where I'd read enough that I knew, but I also was reading more and was like, hmm, well, maybe that's not really true. And this is really important that as fitness professionals, as athletes, as a fellow cyclist or triathlete or runner, that we don't simply state something as fact. And we don't want to get stuck in this belief, such as what we have here in running and our first two guests of the show, footwear and the type of foot that you need to have in order to have that shoe. And this is something that for years I haven't fully bought into. And I've always told athletes, go to the running store, have them assess you. They should watch you walk. They should watch you run. Pants should be rolled up uh, halfway past the calf, if not all the way over the knee. And we want to make sure we find a shoe that feels comfortable for you, as well as we're doing strength training exercises to help you get there. But don't just take it from me. Let's take a listen in to what Dr. Hill had to say in episode three once more. You know, I've had a few runners over the year that, that um, I get the sense they really didn't like what they were hearing and I didn't really see them back. But I think most people are reasonable. And when you take the time to explain to them what's going on and, and what the actual research shows, then um, then they tend to understand. Sometimes it's tough for them to kind of let go of those deeply held beliefs and feelings towards shoes. Um, but you know, the shoe is, is one tool in the toolbox. It's one piece of the puzzle. And a lot of times they could better spend kind of time and energy elsewhere, like uh, strength training or just improving their training in general. Um, you know, whereas the shoe might be 5% of the puzzle, but they're kind of ignoring something that might be 20 or 30% of the puzzle. And this is something that's really important. Uh, We really don't want to get stuck on a single belief. And we all have that. Oh, these shoes are the best because they worked for me or because they worked for someone else I know that had knee pain. You really need to take the time to make sure that you are finding the help of a true professional, having them assess you. Because if you don't assess, it's just a guess, right? You have to assess and we have to figure out what's going on for you. Shoes are not going to make you faster. Shoes will not necessarily prevent an injury. It's strength training. And that's kind of where we went in our interview with uh, Dr. Hill was talking about the the program that he has down there in Baton Rouge and how he focuses on performance and injury prevention. It's a 12-week program. And over the course of the first couple of weeks, as he spoke about, they're really focused on posture, core bracing, firing the right muscles, uh, which comes from joint position dictating muscle function. And one of the things that really struck me, and I really like to drive home with you this week, is that he doesn't go up to someone who's doing a glute meat exercise and say, oh, you're doing it wrong. He just says, oh, you know, where'd you pick that up? And he mentions, uh, you know, they say, oh, I got it from a physical therapist. Well, have you tried about doing it this way? He doesn't say you're wrong. He asks. He's curious. Maybe they had an adaptation because this works better for them. But once he hears that they got it from a physical therapist, then he tries to correct them and get them into the joint position being in the correct place because joint position 
dictates muscle function. So that little knock there, any of you who have taken my strength training for triathlon success course on Training Peaks University, the triathlon success will remember that because that was a point I really drove hard throughout the whole course. And that's why we anchored it to that, that audio cue of, because I wanted to wake you up in the middle of the night and I won't wake you up in the middle of the night, but theoretically to walk up to your house at three o'clock in the morning, bang on the door and ask you joint position. And you'd automatically go to oh, case muscle function. Why are you here? I have a break coming up in the morning. Hey, do you want some coffee? Uh, that's not a clip. That is just me redoing it. Ah, oh, it's amazing. Uh, I practiced it a lot, if you couldn't tell. And this ties, that practicing ties into something else that we spoke about. Core control and teaching the hip hinge. And this is something that was really interesting with uh, Casey and how how much he focuses on it the first couple of weeks of that strength training program and progresses it from unloaded to loaded. So let's take a listen in to that. Tell us a little bit more about how the, you program sure. the class. Like what kind of, what's the normal class look like? What's the order? And, and uh, a little bit more about how you organize power, strength, and stability throughout. Right. So it's, um, you know, I guess I kind of come to it from, from the lens of, of both, um, performance, but also I can't, can't quite give up the MD side of it. Right. So part of my goal is to make sure no one gets injured in this class. And so like week one, you know, the first few minutes we, we discuss posture. Um, it's, it's a big thing for athletes. I think I've heard you mention it in a previous podcast and it's, it's really important if someone is, walking and standing and sitting with crappy posture, they're going to tend to bike and run with crappy posture. And if they only try to fix that when they're running, it's, it's not going to carry over well. So they have to, they have to learn to have slightly better posture, which kind of ties in closely with core control. Um, so that then, you know, they can have that stable core to, to then move their, their limbs from whether it's swimming, biking or running. So, so we always have a, a little bit of a biomechanics lesson usually to start the class. Then we take them through a workout. Uh, week one, you know, we focus a lot on what, what is core bracing. Everyone hears this term. Everyone has a different idea of it. Uh, most people that even have a clue what we're talking about tend to kind of do a, a real strong abdominal contraction, kind of like they're doing a crunch and they flatten their back out. They do a posterior pelvic tilt because there's still a lot of therapists who teach that. And instead, we try to focus on, on kind of finding a spine-neutral position because that's a position we want to be in running and then bracing into that spine-neutral and kind of using more of the transversus abdominis to hold that position and then teaching them to feel muscles and use muscles, especially like glute max and glute med. And, and so the first, first couple of weeks, it can look like therapy exercises. Uh, I guess I'd back up and say one of the big things I learned at UVA and the reason our therapists there would get good results as they were just very focused on form. And so like if a patient sees me in clinic and, and they say, I have IT band, I've been going to therapy and yeah, we're doing a ton of gluteus media stuff. I mean, my first question is, well, where are you in therapy? Um, Cause I've, I've to <laughs> which therapist uh, I trust ones I don't trust. And then if I don't know, I'll say, well, we'll demonstrate and have the time when they show me the exercise. It's like, yeah, no wonder that didn't work because you're kind of doing it wrong. So we're, we're very particular folks do things. Um, I teach the class. My wife teaches it. She's been a PT for 10 or 12 years and she's a Pilates instructor. So she has a really good eye for seeing, seeing problems and, and cueing people to kind of fire the right muscles and stay in the right position. Um, 
over the weeks, we kind of advance, you know, each week kind of builds on the last week and, and we get to harder and harder body weight exercises. And then we slowly start introducing um, strength exercises. Uh, and it's, it's changed every single class I've changed it. So we, we do try to get to deadlifting and I learned that um, I don't think we do it this week, but starting, starting our second week in class, we start working on hip hinging. A lot of people just don't, they don't quite understand that that simple motion or especially doing it with a spine neutral position. So we'll work on it for six weeks before we introduce a barbell and still, you know, you'll see a few people that, that they can give you a perfectly good hip hinge with body weight. And as soon as you put a barbell in their hands, they're, they're rounding their spine like crazy. And so it's just kind of working on that motor patterning first and then slowly progressing with uh, adding some resistance and load to it um, to really kind of build up on strength. And this process that Casey is talking about, how they take the first five to six weeks to go over the hip hinge, is something we're going to hear more about in future episodes. And, and we've already recorded a number of interviews and a number of great things coming down the pike for you. But one of the things a lot of individuals miss, coaches and athletes alike, uh, seasoned and greenhorn, when we're doing strength training, it's not just the muscles and the movement patterns that need to, need to uh, adjust and adapt to what we're asking of it, but it's also the tissues. And this is something that a lot of us don't think about. And I, I spoke to another expert coming up here in a couple of weeks, uh, actually in the next two or three weeks, you'll hear from him, uh, very well known and speaks about how injuries to cyclists of their back actually oftentimes happens in the weight room because they're going, they have very strong legs, but the tissues of the spine have not taken the compression or the shearing loads that they're trying to put onto them with deadlifting or squatting. And that's where the injuries happen. And then they're perpetuated by the cycling position. And this is really interesting and something that, that looking back in my experiences, that makes total sense. Thinking about the people that just started with me and went ahead and, and didn't listen to the prescribed weights and, you know, added 30, 40, 50, 60, some of them 80% more because it was quote unquote too easy. And it's really important for us to make sure that we're focusing on the process and not the outcome. And that's how we make sure we're able to adhere to the plan. We're able to communicate clearly with our coaches, or if you're self-coached, hire an expert to look at your training program and see any fault or flaws and to ask you the hard questions or the questions that you don't know to ask. But focusing on the process and not the outcome is very important. And this is something Dr. Casey Hill also had to say in his episode. Uh, yeah, I have a talk with uh, dad about focusing on process and not outcomes, right? Like every, every great coach you ever listened to kind of preaches that. In episode four, we had the speed guy, Lee Taft joined us. And while some of you may be wondering, why did you have a speed guy on to talk about jumping and agility for triathletes and runners? We, we don't need that. That's exactly the point that I wanted to make. And this is something that I found to be incredibly valuable for all of my triathletes since I started coaching triathlon almost 15 years ago. We have always done speed and agility work. I still remember very vividly taking my first triathlete, feeling very nervous. I almost wanted to throw up because I'm taking her uh, over to the Carnegie Mellon University open uh, outdoor stadium to do some sprint and agility and jumping work. And I was dreading when she'd asked me, you know, why are we doing all this? Uh, and she was a softball player at a division one level. So uh, she was very talented, very skilled. And the question did come. And thankfully, it was the right person at the right time. And I just said, look, as a runner, even though you're going straight, we still have to train the abilities to go side to side. And she just kind of looked at me. And she's like, oh, that makes total sense. Cool. 
and we had a blast. I still have the videos from my iPhone too, believe it or not. Uh, I still have those. I still scroll past them and they bring back great memories because she absolutely smashed her first triathlon and she's still doing it now. Uh, I think they now have two kids, her and her husband both. But um, the focus on the process and not the outcome is kind of why uh, I want to make the transition here. Because as we dive into the beginning of the, the interview with Lee Taft, I asked a really tough question at the beginning about speed and agility and, and jumping and why triathletes and runners don't do it. And and the response I got from him was absolutely better than I could have ever imagined. And for you, I want the take home to be from this. Listen to what he is saying. And and we can't get ourselves stuck into, well, I'm a triathlete. I only have to run straight ahead. His answer has so many levels and layers to it. Uh, you that are out there that have been athletes reading, and those of you who have been coaches coaching and paying attention over the last couple of years will get a lot out of Lee's answer here as to why agility and jumping work uh, and speed, not just track days, but sprinting is important for triathletes. So let's take a listen in. What are your thoughts on speed and agility for, for these athletes? You know, what, what importance do, does it serve them and, and why has it gone uh, untapped for so long? You know, that's a, that's just a really, really good question because you are so right. Most especially long time coaches are not at all comfortable or have a, have a base of understanding of the value of training the human system to have variability and variability just gives us greater potential, greater options. So when I was a head track coach and also I was a, a cross country coach, but I also you know, trained other athletes, you know, I trained athletes of all team sports and field sports. And, and the one thing that I always tried to do with my linear athletes, my track and my cross country, my distance runners, my, you know, whether it's a, a 5k, a 10k, a marathon or whatever, triathlete is uh, multi-planar movements or multi-directional um, movements. If even if we just did them in one direction, so we didn't even include change of direction yet, which we will, we'll, we'll mention that. But if we even did that, we are giving the structure, the system, um, more capacity, more capacity to, to be able to joint load and to be able to handle uh, force absorption and force production. So, and we, if we look at like the feet, for example, that's, you know, that's mm -hmm. the critical component. That's what touches the ground and that's what gives us sensory feedback. And we have all these joints, you know, whether we're talking from the toes or as we move up the foot into the ankle and the, and the, the, you know, the lower leg and how we go internal, external rotation and pronation, supination and mid tarsal joint movement. Mm -hmm. We've got all these patterns. So if we can train those movements to strengthen those patterns, to strengthen our feet and strengthen our ankle and our lower leg, it just makes us a more efficient mover in a linear pattern like a distance run or a, um, you know, or a straight ahead run. Um, and then, then if, we, if we include like the agility, uh, change of direction, deceleration training, now all we've added is we've added the element of strengthening uh, tissues, strengthening the, the system to be able to manage mass and momentum. So if we're like a triathlete 
which there is the potential for variability and quick change of directions based on something happening in front of us, especially at the beginning of a race mm -hmm. uh, where there's a pack. Um, cross country is run through trails and unforgiven un, uh, terrain sometimes. The ability to be able to change our pace or our momentum gets built up through basic agility training, real simple stuff, doesn't have to be fancy. And so I think there's so much value in it that we just don't tap into yet. But hopefully we do, because I think it'll make a better, a better uh, distance runner if we were to use that phrase. So what did you hear there? The strengthening of the tissues to handle momentum and what you are asking of it, the feet and the joints of the lower leg, the posture. Now, he didn't say posture outright, but he did say how the feet and joints and the lower leg are interacting. That has a lot to do with posture. So if something's off further up the chain, it's not going to be working higher up on the chain. So again, strengthening the tissue, something we heard back in episode number three with Casey. And this is really, really important. I want to try and get this across because it is about the tissue quality, strengthening the tissues to handle the, the momentum and the stresses we're placing on it. And the thing is, is that the feet are, are springs essentially. And what we're looking for is we're trying to introduce and, and get used to other various movements uh, that are important that will allow us to build up the foot. So we don't question in strength training doing side squats or, or, or lunges. Um, but really, when we look at running, we don't really train the foot that much. And, and as Lee says, we're very much transverse or side-to-side -side control animals and, and beings. So we need to learn how to control that side-to-side -side motion of the feet kind of rolling in or out or our hips rolling side to side or rotary stability as we go through. And it really comes from the ability to stabilize and create greater stiffness because just as with episode two, force creates motion, but stiffness controls motion. So let's let Lee tell us a little bit more about that. The more that we get the feet involved, now we got this nice spring mechanism and we can become so much more efficient and economical as we run. And if we are doing strength training for any other part of the body, our hips, our core, our, you know, our legs or whatever it is, you know, we, we don't question training multiplanar. You know, we don't you know, question maybe doing a side squat or a side lunge or a, you know, a multi-directional type lunge or movement or pressing from different patterns. But with our feet, we got to understand the more we can get our athletes to move in the frontal plane and certainly the transverse plane, obviously sagittal, just the more forgiving and resilient and the greater stiffness we get in all those potential directions, especially the transverse, because we're really transverse animals. That's really what we are. We have to always control the transverse plane, especially with all the bones and joints and the ankle and the feet. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, I just think that's so important that we that we address that with our athletes to get them to buy in and then to be able to say, well, if I can protect you from hitting a bad piece of pavement or a, you know, a, a little hole that kind of is below the grass that you don't see. So we can protect you from that. Not only can you still keep performing really well, but we might avoid you from you know, ending your season with a bad injury. So, so I think usually they'll buy in if I can get them to understand that part of it. 
Want to learn more? Check out humanvortextraining.com for more on this topic from Coach Brody and today's guest. Lee and I went on from there to speak a little bit about building up the tissue qualities over time. And this is something that in the Strength Training for Triathlon Success course I spoke about also almost ad nauseum. Uh, it's about these small repetitive daily things that we do are multiple times a week. So it's not necessarily about getting into the strength room or strength training, uh, you know, six, seven days a week or going in and killing yourself. Um, and especially with corrective exercises, this is something that I made the mistake early in my career that I was just giving people corrective exercises. And out of an hour session, we would spend about 45 minutes there and only about 15 minutes actually lifting. And this is a it may work and it is appropriate because, of course, it does depend. It depends on where the athlete is and what their needs are. But for the vast majority of us out there, the corrective exercises uh, can be built into our 10 to 15 minute dynamic warm up. And this is something that I've found works extremely well. It's a time saver. It also keeps the athletes fresh and allows us to see. A, a compounding of results over the course of time. So after that, Lee and I and kind of went on and, and I was really interested to hear what he does to help athletes that are, uh, you know, Olympic distance or half Ironman or just runners to gain speed. Because here at Human Vortex Training for the last couple of years, uh, the last, oh, geez, it's over half a decade at this point, I've been really using very short distances and even timed sessions as opposed to distances to help my athletes, my triathletes, and my runners gain speed. And this is something I picked up uh, over the years, learning from other coaches and just what worked for me and my athletes. And I'm not the fastest runner by any means, and uh, I still yet to, to complete anything longer than, than a 10K. But really what it comes down to is if you need and want speed, as we spoke about with Dr. Hill, as, as well as the beginning here with Lee, it's training the tissue qualities and the nervous system as well. So the musculoskeletal system, the neuromuscular system has to work better and you have to get that leg turnover. And that's something that I, I really enjoy doing via striders. We'll do it through skips into speed, uh, what I call two gear sprints, three gear sprints, and other shorter duration things that most triathletes, they call me up, are you sure you gave me the right training program? Why do you have me doing 50 meter and 40 meter sprints? Uh, have you lost your mind? What were you smoking or drinking when you when you wrote this for me? Uh, or I, uh, my favorite one is, I hope that bottle of wine was really good because you wrote me the wrong training. Uh, you have me doing... 30-yard sprints today. Um, and what's interesting is, is Lee's been doing something very similar. Now, he does something that's more towards a wave loading, if you will, uh, and I'll let him explain that a little bit. Whereas here in my practice, what I found works for my athletes is, and, and those that have come to me asking advice, is doing shorter distances interspersed with longer distances because it's not the runner or the triathlete who can go the longest distance that's going to win, it's the one who can cover that the fastest. And this is really where a lot of triathletes come to me. They're not beginners, or they are beginners, but they're looking to be competitive. And the other area I get are people who have been running massive mileage and come to me because they've had chronic overuse injuries. They've had plantar fasciitis. They've had uh, numerous stress fractures. And, you know, hey, I hear you're the guy who can help me be able to get back to sport and not just get back to sport, but get faster. And this is part of the, the secret, I guess you could say, is we're including strength training. We're including so many other things into their 
training that they're just not used to karaoke's and ballerinas. And we're not talking karaoke, you know, singing out loud on the, the front of the bar. Uh, no, thank you. We're talking about karaoke or, um, going side to side, more football type drills, or for those, uh, non-Americans, that would be American football. It would also be footballers or soccer for those Americans. And the thing is, is that this is really the key to some of the success or one of the keys to some of the success here with the triathletes that have come to us. Because I don't really take a lot of triathletes, especially at this point in my career. I really know the triathletes that are going to do well with me uh, from the the hour interview or half hour interview we do uh, at the beginning. And there are certain things that I'm looking for because we're not looking for triathletes who just want to finish. We're not looking for triathletes who say they want to get stronger, but they're so stuck and I need to do 16 or 24 or 28 miles before my event. We're looking for triathletes who are looking for a a new, better way of doing things. Train smarter, not harder, because it's all about you. And I, I can't stress that enough because that really is what it's all about. And the triathletes who come to me, it's very much uh, a team effort. So getting them to understand, hey, these shorter distances are important. You're doing these lateral things for a reason. Why are you doing jumping? Why are you doing skipping? Why are you doing these ankling drills that feel weird? You're a triathlete for gosh sakes. That's exactly why, because you don't have to just be fast in the run, but your tissues have to be able to perform after doing a swim and a bike. So under a fatigue Day, you need to be able to perform and those tissues need to be really, really strong and able to deal with those forces. And that's what we're often missing. So what we're going to do here is we're going to cut over to Lee talking about gaining speed to enhance your, abil- your ability to run fast. And he says exactly the same thing that I say. It's not the, the person who can run the longest that wins a triathlon or a running race. It's the person who can run the fastest over the given distance we have. And that's usually for me that, that hits the switch for the triathlete or the runner to go, okay, let's see what we got here. So let's take a listen in to what Lee has to say about this. It seems very prevalent in the track and field community to use distances. So 400s, 200s, 100s. What about using time for a desired uh, metabolic energy system, like uh, three, five, or eight minutes for VO2 max and seeing if the athlete can pace themselves properly. Is that something you ever dabbled with or you would see uh, value in? Yep. Yep. Matter of fact, I probably did that more, to be honest with you. You know, I would, so I would say, you know, we would be in the, you know, 230, 3.30, you know, five minutes or whatever it is, we would hit those times. Uh, and, and so the athlete, if you know, typically I try, especially high school kids don't always do it, but I tried to get them to have a watch, mm-hmm. you know, and this was back before all the GPS and all that stuff come out. But I just tried to get them have a watch so that you're with me. I've got you on my watch. I've got your time and I've got everything, but I want you to be able to see where you're at as well. Because if I'm not in voice range, you need to be able to know where you're at and how much you have to be able to push. So yes, I think, I think that is really good because then I know I can hit chemical you know, uh, capacities and breakdown, things of that level. So if I want to get them to learn to buffer, I have to hit certain uh, time, uh, you know, thresholds. And this is one of the many things that uh, I do different here at Human Vortex Training with my triathletes and runners, and also with my cyclists. There, there's a lot of different things that we do, but really the the interview with Lee was just fascinating. I, I, I absolutely loved sitting and talking with him. We, we talked for quite a bit uh, before and after as well. And uh, he's got a ton of great content. Now, the thing is, is that this is one of the challenges that we have 
in our sports is that we tend to, you know, as we spoke about before with Casey, is that we need to be careful not to think that we know it all and not to get stuck in our beliefs, right? So one of the things with triathletes that I, I really noticed here is that we tend to get stuck on, and runners are, are, I think, worse. We we tend to get stuck on using distances for when we're doing our trainings. Distance, all distance. What distances? What you know? How many four hundred meter repeats? And same with swimming, by the way. Uh, so both of these are sports that I'm I'm kind of an outlier as far as I know. And if you're a coach out there who's who's doing what I'm about to say that I'm doing here, please contact me or an athlete. I'd really like to hear why you made that switch and how awesome the results were when you made that change. And that is prescribing intervals for running and swimming based off of length of time as opposed to distances. Now, Lee has a fantastic answer to this question of, of why he thinks it is so prevalent to prescribe distances as opposed to times. And I, I completely agree with him. But I also think that it's it's quite a bit of a, well, we already know that we're going to do 400, so we're just going to do that. And I think part of it is a a, a little bit of a, a, a sticking point because it's not comfortable for us to know how far we can go in that time period. And, and the thing is, is that in my opinion, at this point in my career, who knows where I'll be in five or 10 years or 20 years, and, and maybe I'll disagree with this, and maybe you disagree with it, but I think it's doing our athletes a disservice when we're just putting out distances instead of times. I really like to use this whenever uh, we're going out and uh, it's in the middle of winter in the Northeast. I also have some some athletes in Europe that will do the same thing. We get into this rut where you know, it's cold out, it, it's freezing, we have to get our workouts in, and we know that it's important. We're, we're focusing on the process like we spoke about before. I like to shake it up and sometimes make a very calculated pivot to timed efforts for running and swimming. And it just completely throws the athlete off. But this is something that as coaches and as athletes, we need to start doing more and more because we're, when we're out on the, the course, you have a headwind or maybe the pavement isn't as good as you thought it was or remember it being, which has happened to some triathletes of mine out on climbs and out on the flats. And what happens is you're trying to break up the climb or figure out, okay, I've done this much and it's going to take me about this much more time to get to the top. And then they start going back to, well, what what time distances did I do on the bike for this? And what is my power? And, and now we're using a stride running power meter here. Uh, and the athletes keep coming back with, I'm using time for the climbs. I'm using time for my tempo. I'm using time when I have a tailwind or a headwind. And they're breaking it down based off of the energy systems. And that's really what, you know, the power profile, which we talk about in, in upcoming episodes and, and the fatigue profile, but mostly the power profile is going to allow you to understand what the energy systems, more correctly, the metabolic systems are able to produce, the, the chemical uh, responses you're going to have within the body and the neurological responses you're going to have by going, and hormonal as well, by going for these times. And Lee does a fantastic job of answering this. And we also talk later in the interview about, you know, why both of us kind of use interchangeably uh, as exercise physiologists and uh, experienced coaches, we know that the energy systems and the metabolic systems are, are very different and we can't really interchange it. So later on in the interview, we get into that, but I, I want to keep us on point here. And, and this will be our last little tidbit or clip, uh, I think from Lee today. And, and why, why don't we use time and what his thoughts are? on using time for running, but we also apply it to swimming as well for intervals as opposed to distance. So let's take a listen. So 
we would do so the, the the one thing that i always preached to my athletes when i coached track and field and cross country i always made sure they understood the person that runs the, is capable of running the furthest does not win necessarily it's the person who runs the fastest for the distance we've set okay so 3.1 whatever it is five you know whatever the distance is you at some point you've got to have some speed if you're going to win you could go out and run miles all day but if there's no uh, cadence and speed to it, then you're probably not going to be real successful. You have to have some speed. So what I like to do, so you had mentioned a miler, so we use that as an example. So I want to make sure they have the ability to have the endurance and the capacity to maintain at a distance speed. Uh, 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 what was the word I'm trying to think of? But like a capacity to be able to hold their speed or so speed endurance ability. So we might go like at 600 and 800 and we're gonna do repeats of those. Then what I would do, I would drop, and this, this would be successive sessions sometimes. And I figured this out over time of doing it is I would go to like have them do 60s, 80s and 100s. Mm -hmm. Now I'm getting their speed at a much higher level. Mm -hmm. Then I would jump back up to their mile and we would do repeat miles. And then we would go right back through that sequence again. So what was happening is the athletes never got too far away from turning their legs over faster, but we always stayed around being able to build the capacity to run that mile with still having energy uh, reserves. And that was the value of doing the repeats, you know, and the interval, interval type training stuff that allowed them to build the capacity but by doing it almost it's kind of like a wave loading i didn't you know i, I could make it more wave loading but it was kind of like a you know like a uh, you know you know go from from the, your your race pace then let's drop down a little bit below that and now let's go ahead and get a higher speed and then let's drop way down into like a 60 80 or 100 and now let's turn over and then we'll jump right back and so we always gave them that ability to feel speed while they were still at their race distance. And while we spoke about that speed matters over the distance, not the longer distance, this is something that a lot of triathletes, in my opinion, uh, go too long, literally, uh, in the aerobic zone. And this is a a challenge that I've seen with numerous triathletes that have come to me after working with other coaches is they are just so high in mileage and so high in chronic training load that even though when their training stress is is positive, their training stress balance is positive, they're not seeing the results that, that, that they need for a number of reasons. Uh, number one is they just don't have the stiffness needed. And, and I've had some athletes come to me and say, well, my coach said I, I never, I, I'm not a stiff person. I'm not able to to produce that force that I need. And I ask, how often did you train it? Did you do strength training? Did you, did you, did you increase your ability to make use of the force development and get off the ground faster? Well, no, strength training is going to make me fat and slow and too heavy. And this is so prevalent, so prevalent in the endurance communities. And I, I have a blog post that came out today on Tuesday. Uh, I believe it's March 12th, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Tuesday, March 12, 2019. So if you're listening to this, go back to humanvortextraining.com. Look at the blog post from Tuesday, March 18th, 2019 about running. And this was a exchange that was on another uh, fitness professional 
uh, website or page rather on Facebook that I turned into a blog post because my response, their question and their ignorance that they had about strength training, well, runners are weak anyhow, and don't use a, an example of a runner who half squats at 40 kilos and does circuit training as an example of strength training. Dude, dudette, senor, senora, that is the type of strength that we're looking at for our runners, cyclists, and triathletes. It's not the total amount of weight that is on the bar that matters. Nobody gives a crap how much you can bench bra or how much can you deadlift bra. You're not deadlifting off the floor. It's not a deadlift. None of that matters. None of it matters. None of it. None, 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 none. You have to think, yes, full range of motion, if you have it for squatting and deadlifting, is important. But the only people who need to have uh, butt to floor or ass to grass, as they say, squats are Olympic lifters. The only people who need to deadlift off the floor are power lifters who are actually competing. There is absolutely nothing wrong with going into a weight room and doing partial range of motions. Is that going to be something I'm going to coach you at the beginning? No. I want to try and get you that joint balance. We're going to try and work through the range of motion that you have, see what's working, what's not working. And then we're going to help you come up and, and gear your body to better strategies. And that's where functional training comes in. So if you're listening to this, I just did, uh, or it was just released rather for Velo News Fast Talk, uh, episode number 69, where I talk about what is functional training for cyclists. And it's a, a really, really good one. Uh, Chris and Trevor did a fantastic job. Uh, their questions were really tough. We really got into some uh, fun positions for them laying down on the floor and actually getting exercises completely blind. I didn't have a video all I had was Trevor or Chris to tell me how the other person was doing, and I'm coaching them blind, just in my mind's eye, seeing what they look like. I've, I've met Trevor in person at the USA Cycling Coaching Summit when I presented here in 2018, uh, so I kind of had an idea of, of what he looked like. But uh, back on track here, the number one thing that we need to think about is that when you're looking at triathlon or running, stiffness is something that we need to develop. It's not the muscle's ability to fire. We actually, the best runners are like springs. They go boing, 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 boing. They don't run and absorb, run and absorb. So we're not looking for necessarily muscular strength, but we're looking for the stiffness to be able to de develop. That tuning of the joints, the tuning of the muscles to be able to produce that spring, that stored spring response that you're able to propel yourself down the road. And any triathlete who's gone through transition to can tell you your legs feel like lead coming off the bike. And this is where my first uh, few ever half Ironman and Ironman triathletes fought with me a little bit about doing fast pedals and stomps before they got off the bike until after their fourth or fifth uh, brick practice with it. And they were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I feel this good coming off the bike. And they saw some of their best run times. You have to train and tune that stiffness in that spring. And a lot of that comes from joint position dictating muscle function. So we have to have that. And let's hear what Lee has to say about producing and learning how to build this stiffness and strength training and how that is not a bonus. That is something that is necessary and we really need here in the sport of triathlon and running. What are some things that in your perspective, a triathlete should be prioritizing towards the top that they're probably not? Oh, if, if we're, would you I don't know if you want to go down the strength route, but certainly, certainly the strength portion of it, just because of rate of force development and to be able to get off that ground quicker, that's one thing. But if we were to not go that route, um, the, the areas that I think, and this is where I impacted, you know, my, my endurance athletes the most is sprint training and pure plyometric training. 
I, I think the ability to develop that resiliency, that elastic and that stiffness quality, when you explain to them, you have roughly this many steps, and if each step matters more, and if we even gain, you know, inches per step over that distance of a time matters tremendously. So I think teaching them how to become, uh, you know, more create that stiffness and that elastic quality to get off the ground, which is done through, we can do that through sprint, which is a form of low level plyometrics. Mm -hmm. And then obviously pure, you know, a plyometric training where we're working on maybe a depth landing and then a depth jump or, or repeat jumps of that nature. When I implemented a system for my, my athletes and we progressed it over years, that's when we went from, you know, having, you know, not very many successful athletes to having, you know, state champions and things of that nature. It's just because now they became, and of course it was with proper training, uh, you know, endurance training and proper strength training, but that really was one of the things that made a difference. So I think triathletes with all that they have to do, um, you know, being able to have that, that tissue quality, be able to get stiff and create elastic energy. I think that just adds such a bonus to their, you know, to their uh, events. And this is something that's really important. And I, I think I'd take it a step further than what Lee said and that he sees it as a bonus. I see this as a necessity. I, I think that triathletes and runners both need that spring ability and the strength that they need. And we, he and I actually didn't go into the strength and I knew we only had so much time for the interview. Uh, Lee, hopefully we'll be back a little bit later in the season, this summer for an interview and helping you to get ready for a peak or for your prime race. And the thing is, is that I really uh, fully strongly believe that strength training and jumping and short sprints at high speeds and agility work are all necessities for triathletes. Uh, and this is built on top of the foundation of strength. Now, here's the great thing. So today, uh, well, let's say the episode is going to be released on March 12th, Tuesday. There's also a blog post on the Human Vortex Training website, humanvortextraining.com, that will be released that is talking about strength training for runners and, and the pervasive thought that we have that is keeping runners from avoiding injuries and just having silly repetitive injuries that can easily be prevented by proper strength training. And essentially what I did is I took a response post that I wrote for a an, on another fitness professional's page uh, with their permission uh, to answer this individual uh, in depth, essentially, because what this individual expressed, someone would use the term ignorance. And I, I think a little bit of it is ignorance, but for the most part, it's just people don't know. And the comment was, well, runners don't need strength training. They need more running technique, which this individual is correct. The running technique for most runners is, is very poor. They don't learn how to run properly um, and that they only need power endurance and uh, speed endurance. The thing is, is that this is the pervasive thought across the fitness industry, and this is causing a lot of challenges and issues for runners and really holding us back and triathletes. Strength, and, and the post was that you don't need to run 
to be strong, but you need to be strong to run. And this is within reason. It doesn't mean you're deadlifting 200 kilos off the floor or 500 pounds. It does mean that we're building strength in the right ways that are specific for your sport. And for the vast majority of runners out there, it's going to be just basic running strength is going to be basic anatomical adaptation and some hypertrophy. Now, I know what you're thinking with hypertrophy. I don't want to look like Arnold. I don't want you to look like Arnold either. But there's two different types of hypertrophy. And I cover this in the in the response. We have sarcolemic, which is the space between the actual contractile properties, which is what bodybuilders are after. And we have myofibrillar. And I talk about this again in my strength training for triathlon course, as well as the strength training for cycling success course on Training Peaks University. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning these is because there's so much that we need to teach you. And I'd like to teach you as a triathlete or runner about strength training, because it is really important. But what it comes down to is there was a post and that was the original, you know, you don't have to uh, be strong. Uh, you don't have to run to be strong, but you need to be strong to run. And, and the professional made it very clear. This is a general statement and there's obviously going to be outliers. And somebody said, well, that's not true. As we mentioned already, um, they said speed endurance and power endurance. Okay. And running technique. Don't totally disagree. But someone else went on to say, well, strength training is actually really important for runners and posted Mo Farah's uh, video of him quarter squatting 40 kilos and doing a circuit training. So this under individual came back and was not very nice about their response. They're very snippy um, and, and kind of gave a jab back. Uh, well, if you want to say that runners need strength training, uh, don't show me a video of someone quarter squatting 40 kilos and doing circuit training, pretty much discounting the fact that this is very specific strength training that is very relevant to that sport and what that athlete actually needs at that level. I've never met Mo in person. I hope to one day. Uh, and just looking at the things out there on the internet, it's probably what I would give him as well. Not knowing his injury history or movement patterns or anything like that for a top runner, we don't need full squats. And in fact, you don't need to squat, quote unquote, ass to grass, unless you're an Olympic lifter. And you don't need to deadlift off the floor unless you are a competitive power lifter. And this is really important because there's so many people out there, coaches, not just bros. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's a bro thing. Well, actually, there's a lot of fitness professionals who say, if you're not deadlifting off the floor, it doesn't count. What's the point in doing it? If you're not doing the full Olympic lift with a full squat down to the bottom, doesn't count. It doesn't help you. And that's complete BS. We need to wrap our heads around the fact that strength training as a whole, for most of us, the vast majority of us are professional in something else and competitive in our sports. And what I mean by that is we're spending 40 hours a week plus 40 to 60 hours a week working in something else. Most of you are going to be out there working in a, a sedentary job. You're sitting at a desk. I happen to work in fitness, so I'm standing, moving. If I sit in a desk too long, like today, editing this podcast, or if I'm writing a blog post too long, uh, I get achy joints and back. My back does not like sitting for very long. Same with car rides. So driving the follow car on weekends for group rides can be very challenging sometimes, especially when we're reaching six, seven, eight hours. On top of this, you're trying to go out and perform. So you are now sitting primarily, let's say 30 hours a week, because you are doing a good job of getting up. And that means that we need to make sure that we are uh, building your training that's going to allow you to go through proper full range of motions that you're going to need. So if you come into me as a runner, as a recreational runner, even as a, an age group highly competitive, am I going to try and get you to squat close to parallel, if not beyond, if you have that range of motion and stability? Yes, because I believe as a human being, you need these movements. But 
am I going to say that I failed if I didn't get you anywhere beyond a quarter squat? Absolutely not. Because when we're running, we're actually going through about an eighth to a tenth of a squat as you're running. Some will go as, as high as you know a quarter squat. That's a very big, deep uh, absorption, which we don't want too much. But about an eighth to a tenth. And everybody is different. And again, it depends. But when we look at Mo, the weight on the bar doesn't matter. It's going through that range of motion and being able to maintain tension. It's getting muscles intra and intermuscular coordination, getting tension in the right way, and getting you to be able to spring your way down the road or trail as opposed to absorbing. So we want tissue quality. And this is something that's really important that a lot of cyclists, just endurance athletes as a whole, don't understand. They think strength training is just moving heavy weight, and every week if the weight is getting heavier, it's better. I have some people in my strength training for triathlon uh, group uh, that are still technically deadlifting the same weight but now we're doing hover deadlifts. We're doing deadlifts uh, off of a 10-inch or 12-inch riser. So technically, their weights haven't gone up, but their time under tension has, or their ability to maintain tension and get the right muscles to fire has. Their ability to maintain good posture has. And as we heard earlier in today's podcast from Dr. Uh, Hills, Sometimes you give people a bar and their hinge was beautiful without weight and now it's completely jacked up. And this is how it works. And that's okay. That's totally okay. We need to find the tool that works for you to meet you where you are today so that you're able to see the results that you need to see. That's it. And as a athlete, and this is where a lot of cyclists go wrong, and, and we'll hear from another leading expert in a couple of weeks here, uh, in two or three weeks, hinting at what's coming. There are many cyclists who have back injuries that don't happen on the bike. They happen in the weight room because their legs are strong, but the tissues of the spine and the ability of those tissues to maintain tension through those ranges of motion at the heavier weights in particular, or especially I should say, are next to nil because they've been on the bike doing the things that they need to do there. And that's where an injury occurs off the bike and it's perpetuated because you're in this position on the bike, which inhibits the reparation and, and healing process because you're in that forward flex position. So there's so many different things to consider. And, and one of the things that I want to stress here Again, it's not the weight. And this is what the individual was saying. Is there like, don't show me someone who's quarter squatting 40 kilos and is doing circuit training. And they are just dismissing that that's strength training. And that is completely unacceptable, especially if you're another fitness professional. And this comes back to the beginning of the episode today and what we spoke about with Casey. We don't know what we don't know. And we need to make sure that we stay curious. You know, we all read a little bit and think we have the answers. I'm totally guilty of that. When I was beginning as a professional, like, oh, this is the way you should squat. Feet should be forward 90 degrees and you need to squat, you know, straight up and straight down. Knees shouldn't move at all. And over the evolution of myself as a trainer, as a professional trainer, always reading, always learning, I got into this kind of thing where I just, I was like, wow, there's so many different ways to do it. Which one's the right way? And the answer is it depends. I remember being young in my career and telling somebody, they asked me a question and I said, well, it depends. I'm like, ah, you don't really know the answer. And we got into that a little bit with uh, with Lee. You can hear when I ask him, you know, have you ever had anybody? It sounds like they didn't really believe you. You know, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and getting that buy-in. Actually, that was with Casey, not with Lee. But the point I'm trying to get across to you is that there are different ways to get there. And there's another guest coming up. I'm just planting the seeds because we've got already a bunch of stuff is already recorded. And we're just waiting for that weekly uh, time to come around to release it. And it's actually really exciting. Uh, I get like a little kid, like, ah, I can't, can't wait to get this out because uh, there's some great stuff coming. But another guest is going to talk about how 
in her evolution as an athlete and, and as a fitness professional, the thoughts on strength training have significantly changed. She went from thinking that if you're not lifting heavy weight, you're not lifting at all to lifting sets of 10, sets of 15, even higher, uh, and never touching a single, a double or a triple. So sets of one, two, or three and seeing fantastic results. And it all depends. It's all building on one another. And it's a matter of getting the tension in the right places and the muscles to fire together. So read that blog post. Uh, it's a little bit of a, a soft spot for me. And I get very upset when people are very definitive. This is how it's supposed to be. Ah. And especially when they're not nice. You know, we all have disagreements. And usually you'll see me on the internet. I try and contribute to people. And I always say it depends or tell me more information or I ask them in private. There's never one answer. You know, like uh, there was another post uh, that someone put in the, I think, Pathetics Triathlon group, and it's a static picture, just a regular you know, still picture. And someone said, oh, you need to lower your seat. And so a, a bike fitter that I know, and I, I respect very much, commented, like, you can't you can't tell somebody that about their bike fit with a still picture. It needs to be dynamic. There's a lot of things you have to see. Um, and it was very polite. And I, I very much want to instigate and initiate a lot of these conversations with this podcast. And that's why every episode after two or three or four different professional experts come on, I'm going to share with you what we've been doing at Human Vortex Training and the diamonds that I'd like to really um, pull out of the rough and, and, and begin to cut a little bit for you to, so you can understand and take them and start to use them. So there's a ton of information coming down uh, through this podcast, the next couple of, of weeks, months, years, we actually have a couple months already, uh, already planned out, recorded, and, and just editing. Now, I can't promise that all of the, the re recaps will kind of be this polished. Uh, it is February here, so it's early in the season. We're just starting to get the road racing. Uh, when we get further along, it may just be me referring back to things some of the guests have said and just me talking. I'll, I will try and make it as interesting as possible but I can't promise I'm always going to have the time to clip and cut like this. So just make sure that you're tuning in, you're subscribing, uh, Anchor, Spotify, iTunes. I think we're on SoundCloud as well. So find our podcast, which you already have. Make sure to subscribe so you get the latest episode. Uh, Tuesdays are going to be our release days. And uh, make sure you like and subscribe for the YouTube channel, which is absolutely just blowing up the last couple of months. Uh, I've really seen a big growth in subscribers and a lot more people engaging, which means that the message is getting out there. As a whole, I'd like to thank you for tuning in and I want to invite you, please comment below, send me an email, Brody, B as in boy, R-O-D as in dog, I-E, at humanvortextraining.com, Brody at humanvortextraining.com, and let me know what questions you may have or what, what was it from this specific episode or the last two episodes that you really, you know, helped open your eyes and helped you realize how much more there is out there uh, and why strength training and speed and agility and jumping are absolutely vital for your triathlon or running success. So that's it for today. Check out that blog post. Make sure you share, like, thank you for tuning in today. And I'm really excited for next week's guest. I'm not going to spoil it for you. So you're going to have to subscribe and find out who it is next Tuesday. So until then, have a fantastic week, and remember, train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you. That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com 
or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HBT YouTube channel at HB Training. Until next time, remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.